If I've not met you personally, I just want to say welcome. Seems as though the Lord's always having us have visitors. I walked into church this morning and someone in the first service said, man, you look, you start to look like a hobo with that beard. And so uh, the, the most important thing you need to hear is it's approved by my wife. I haven't always had this much hair on the face, but many of you know I tore my plantar fascia. I run a lot and I tore it about 13 months ago. So this Saturday, I'll have my first half marathon in more than a year. And so one of the reasons for the beard is that I'll just think I'm Forrest Gump and not stop, right? Just keep going. Uh, another reason is I'll be gone to Boston, not next week, but the week following doing a preaching workshop. And last May, I was in Providence, Rhode Island doing a preaching workshop. And so some of the same pastors will attend both workshops because they're so close together. And I'm kind of hoping they don't recognize me because I looked very different last year. So I've got a couple of motives here. Um, but there's our small talk as people come in now. So I'm thankful that we're here together and that we get to study this text in Matthew 7. And I want you to picture something with me before we jump into the Bible together. I want you to picture with me a child asking a father a question. Doesn't matter to me what age the child is that you picture, but Picture a child asking a father a question, maybe asking for something or, or trying to remind their father of a commitment that's been made, something like that. I think we could say it's true that the tone and the countenance of the child will be in proportion to the temperament of the father. I want you to think about that with me for a second. A child will pattern and posture their request before their father based on the nature of the father and the relationship they have with the father. Right? So that's a principle that's going to be embedded in what we're going to study this morning. It's in the center of it. So much so that if you are a father, or if, for all of us, if, if there were hard things or deep things associated with your relationship with your father... I think this is going to be a rather exposing and deep text. Think about this with me. A posture and a, and, and a countenance of a child is a response to how their father has treated them. I could say this carefully. It's easier when my family wasn't in the first service. I can just say it more free. I have children, and I know that because they over-apologize when they're asking me a question, it's because of how I respond. Dad, can I do this? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dad, I shouldn't ask. Because of the way that the Father's countenance has impacted the behavior of that child. Think of your childhood. Think of children that flinch around a father. I go there right away because I think that it is that deep what we're about to study. Now, the Bible right now is not going to be talking to us about earthly fatherhood, okay? But we have Jesus, the Son of the Heavenly Father, telling us how to approach our Heavenly Father, and He's the only one who knows the character and the nature of the Father with perfection from eternity. And so I think there's something viscerally deep in what we're going to navigate, but it's about our Heavenly Father's differentness 
And I hope that that's incredibly encouraging to us this morning. So stand with me and let's read these beautiful words given to us, to that crowd on that hillside in the Sermon on the Mount there in Galilee. So I read to you from Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of God. Let me pray. Father, would you help us now to receive these words of Jesus, to grow in our understanding of who you are as our Heavenly Father through the gospel. Comfort where comfort is needed, convict where conviction is needed, but also more than anything, free us to have the countenance and freedom that Jesus has in his relationship with you and in his teaching us that our Father is his Father. Help us to understand that massive doctrinal, but also very, very relational reality this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus' point in verse 7 and 8 is repeated. Hopefully you can get that point on the outline I put in your insert, right? Uh, Verse 7, he says something in the form of a command. And then in verse 8, he repeats it in the form of a description. But it's the same thing. So it's a repetitive point. More than that, he's already taught on prayer. So he's repeating it all the more. In chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, he has told us how to pray, the Lord's Prayer. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, that's Luke 11, verse 1, we realize just how important this point is for God's children, for his disciples. The disciples go to Jesus and they say, Lord, would you please teach us how to pray? Teach us how to ask things of God. R.C. Sproul says, notice they didn't ask to be taught how to cast out demons. They didn't ask how to walk on water or how to turn water into wine. Their request was, Lord, teach us how to talk to God. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to ask things. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching on that. He commands us, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Three different images, but one singular point. And it's a command. You must do these things. In the Greek, it's a present tense imperative verb, which means it's do over and over. Do continually. Ask, seek, knock continually. And then he goes on and he elaborates, shifts to third person, indicative verbs, also present tense, so continual action. And he says, if you continually obey this and do these things, then you will continually receive what you ask. You will find what you're seeking. He's already told us in chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first the kingdom of heaven, but also the hospitality you long for when you knock, it will be opened to you. Now, notice Jesus doesn't tell us what it is that we should ask for. It'd be easier if he did, but that's not his point in this text. His point in this text is not to explore what it is we should be asking, but the one to whom we pray. That's his emphatic point. Ask of the Father through me, and you will be granted what it is that you ask. He says the same thing in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, 
and the father may be, that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. Do you pray in Jesus' name? Not as some pro forma conclusion to a prayer, but we pray to the Father of Jesus, who is our Father, through the name of Jesus, who is the one that has given us the standing of being sons and daughters of God. So we can't miss that repetitive point. We said it a few weeks ago. When the Bible repeats things in close proximity, it's kind of like bold font or italics or underline or a larger character size. You don't get that in Hebrew or Greek. But when you see in close proximity, repetition, the way it's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount, this is incredibly important. We must not miss the fact that their father will respond to his children who ask things of him. That's the point. But what sort of things do we ask of? That's where Jesus goes next. So that's the ridiculous comparison in verses 9 to 11. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give a stone? Or if his son asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to you? Argument from the lesser to the greater. He's done that before in the Sermon on the Mount. He knows his rhetorical questions have, will, will get a negative response, right? No, no father would do that. No father says, here, suck on this rock and stop talking. We say, here, here's my phone, stop talking. You can play a game. So maybe we don't always do good things for our children. But think about the things in this example. Bread, fish. These are items of life and sustenance. Rocks, snakes. These are things that are dangerous and bring harm. Notice twice in the text, once about human fathers and once about the Heavenly Father, Jesus says the words good gifts. What's he describing as a good gift? Things that are given to nourish and sustain bread or fish. How much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts? So what is he talking about? He's talking about whatever it is that we spiritually need the most. Whatever it is that would give nourishment and sustaining mercy to us. That's what the father gives. And so we could go into a bunch of things, right? He's given us forgiveness of sins for we cannot stop sinning. He's given us a secure standing as adopted sons and daughters of God. We're loved because he's adopted us, not because we perform to stay inside the family. He's given us the righteousness of Christ credited to us, so therefore we're beautiful and perfect in his sight. He's given us secure promises for the future. We could go into all number of things, but James 1.17 says every good gift in life is from the Father. So the food you do eat, the health you do have, the friends that may be an answer to prayer, or that person who's an answer to prayer, or a spouse, or how about a role in his kingdom? That according to... Paul's way of thinking in 2 Corinthians 10, God's given us a sign spheres of influence where we have a role in it. These are all good gifts the Father gives to his own. But his point is in contrasting the character of an earthly father to a heavenly father. And his point is the heavenly father is nothing like you earthly fathers. Notice Jesus actually teaches on original sin here, I think. It's kind of a surprise to us, but through inference we see what Jesus thinks about human fathers. He says, if you then who are evil know how to do good things. The rest of the Bible expands on that, of course, tells us that we're all fallen and only sinful because of the fall of our original father. One commentator says, however, Jesus is saying that even sinful people know how to do what is right. The common grace of giving 
merciful and good things to those God's entrusted to our care. Even those who don't know the tender, loving kindness of God the Father give good gifts to those entrusted to their care. Jesus, though, is emphatic that the good gifts that earthly parents give is still nothing close to the nature of the Heavenly Father. So notice in verse 11, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? So he's describing your Father, but what I want us to to really spend time in this morning, he's describing his own father. This is Jesus telling us the way his father is and Jesus alone would be the one to know. He's the only one that can tell us the good news of the consistent nature of our heavenly father. So there's another point in your outline. That means this reality that's described to us is only true because of the gospel. I use the words, the required gospel. It's not true if the gospel's not true. So what is the gospel? Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation of all who believe. But what is that salvation experience like? It's that of a father by means of his power, his riches, adopting his children who don't ask for it, who wouldn't know to ask for it, bringing them into his family by his mercy and care and promising to keep them secure because of the finished work that his own son did to pay that adoption fee, if you would. And all the secure promises that come to us that were verified by the very resurrection of his own son, such that every spiritual need, every emotional need, every relational need, every justice need, every mercy need, every felt need, in the end, we will have met perfectly by the God who's going to bring a new heavens and new earth to his own children to experience his presence with him. That's the gospel. And this text requires the gospel And Jesus is the only one who could tell us this part of the gospel. He only knows that the father's not harsh, that the father is not revengeful, that the father's not stingy. He's known the father from eternity. And think about his incarnation when he was in the flesh. In his moments of his days, in his suffering, in his trial, did he not know the father was with him the entire time? I only do what my father says. I only go where my father goes. And where I go, my father goes with me, for he is my father. Except there's that one place in the New Testament, isn't there, where Jesus squarely faces up to the fact that it sure feels like his father has abandoned him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as Jesus goes into the grave with our sin on him, he's rejected by the father. But even through the grave, as he's resurrected up, what is happening? The father is not abandoning his own son. The father is actually going to welcome his son back to the eternal communion they've always had. And in John 17, what Jesus prays, Father, I want those who you're giving me to know what I've always known from eternity. The love we've had as father and son, the glory we shared as father and son. I want them to have that. And now we have in this teaching, before it all occurred, before his cross, before his resurrection, Jesus is saying, ask things of the father, my father. Knock and ask for his hospitality to be welcomed. Father gives to those who ask. This text requires the gospel, but here's the flip side of it. That means this text is only true for those who have the father of Jesus as our father. Maybe you'd link it to verse six that we looked at last week, that really weird verse about pigs and dogs and not casting your pearl among swine. They're going to trample all over it. Yeah, there are people about whom this text doesn't apply and that cannot be fulfilled. This text is only true for those who have the father of Jesus as our father. 
There's a place in the New Testament where Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, he, he teaches the same thing in an inverted way. So let me read to you from Luke 13, verse 24. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. So there's that word seek, right? When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside the door and knock, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. And you'll begin to say, well, wait, we ate and we drank in your presence. We, you, you taught in our streets. But the master will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. See, see the same terminology. Seek, ask, knock is in that. And it's inverted. And those who do not have as their father, the father of Jesus, will not have the door open to them, will not find what they are seeking. That means, soberly, that those who pray to a different God, to an idol, those who pray to Allah, or those who are so nominal in their Christianity, they're Christians by name only. They assume everything's right with God, but they don't look to the Father of Jesus as their Father through repentance and faith and and a dependence of God's provision, his way of forgiveness, but also his way of security. This text doesn't fit. This text is for those who have, as our father, the father of Jesus. But if that's the case, here's my question to all of us. Do you ask things freely of God as his child? I'm like, he's just overflowing from you all the time. This God, I need your help. God, this, God, that. Father, I seek your kingdom. I, I don't know how it's supposed to work its way out today or in this place, but asking and seeking and knocking, is it something that you do with abundant freedom? And you, you might say, well, no, I, I actually, here's my problem with prayer. I try and then things go bad and so I quit. I tried that and it doesn't seem to work for me. And so I have an outline point here. I call it the residual challenge. Think of residue, something left over, right? So Jesus has borne the full cost of all of our flesh on his cross. But there's this residual part of our flesh that kind of hangs around, doesn't it? And so I want you to think with me about how you, you maybe still kind of hold on to the part of you that doesn't feel that you can call out to God as Father. You got this residual aspect of your flesh that seems to keep your father distant. So I was thinking this week, Lord, what are some challenges that keep us from being as free as Jesus tells us to be if we're actually praying to his father, who's now our father? So you have four things I listed for you. I want to walk through these. I think the first one is just forgetfulness. I forget that I am a child. I forget that I'm needful. That's the way the Bible describes me. And when I forget that I'm a child, I try to be independent and it doesn't work. I try to find a solution somewhere else and it doesn't work. Well, of course it won't work. Nothing else will work for our dominant identity before God is a child who needs to ask the father to do things that we don't have the power to do. So in my household with not just children of different ages, but actually humans of different physical sizes, it, it always shocks me when I come around the corner of the kitchen and I see our little guy up on like a stool trying to reach something in a cupboard. I'm like, there are a lot of large humans around this place that could access what you are trying to get if you're even allowed to have it. But no, he, he, he wants to be independent, wants to do things his way. This is the way we can be in our spiritual life. We forget that our dominant identity is that of a child who is 100% all the time dependent on God the Father to give us what we need for our sustenance, for life. 
If you think about it, forgetfulness is really the issue in the history of the people of God. Right? From the moment the fall happened, or the moment that they're rescued out of Egypt, how quickly do they forget the glory of God who saw their affliction in Egypt, conquered Pharaoh by means of great, really, decreation acts of glory over Egypt to bring his people out and make them his own. And it took God's people a nanosecond in the wilderness to remember his saving grace and mercy. There's many examples. How quick are God's people to forget the promises the prophets make? How people are go- quick are we to forget the curses of those who disobey God's law and the pain it will bring and the destruction and the wake of people behind us? We forget. And so I think one of the things we struggle the most with is to remember that in God's sight, we've been told that God, our Father, is also the Father of Jesus and our identity, no matter how old we get, needs to be that of a child. In our independence, we'll forget that. So that's the first challenge. I think a second challenge is paralysis. So what I mean by that is it's not that I forget that God the Father is my Father. It's that I don't know what I need, so I don't know what to ask for, so I don't ask for anything. I feel stuck. I'm frozen, which is very different than apathy. Frozen like I'm just not sure what to do. I don't know what to pray for. Actually, there's no reason for paralysis when we're, we're called to pray for and ask for the very things God has commanded and promised in his word, right? That's where we go when we have paralysis. 1 John chapter 3, 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. That means we seek his word to know what we should be asking him for. We have to ask for the things God promised. But James says in chapter 4, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You have to be asking for God to show us what to do by means of his word for his glory and for our good, not for our glory and our pleasure. We're not to ask for our own passions or happiness or ease or success. So what things should we ask for if we let his word guide us? Well, I just started writing things. Do you ask God to make you increasingly righteous in conformity to his law? That's called sanctified. Do you ask him to make you a friend of other Christians, a discipler to walk with others who cannot walk this life alone? Do you you ask him to make you an evangelist, bold to talk to someone who doesn't believe the gospel but has no hope and keeps choosing stupid things, and you just sit there and watch? Do you ask for strength to know how to talk to them? Do you ask for God to give you a role to play in his kingdom with the gifts you have that are different than the gifts somebody else has? But he's defined a sphere of influence for you from before eternity, and you ask for him to show it to you in the moment. Do you ask for him to give us this day our daily bread? And he's the provider. And you ask him to help you trust that. Do you ask for him to give you forgiveness of your sins, but the kind of forgiveness that turns into a a heart that loves forgiving others and loves restoring relationship with others? Do you ask for conviction where you are altogether too casual? I mean, we could just go on and on. His word has given us his will. More than that, the scriptures say he's given us his Holy Spirit. John 14, John 16, the Spirit's given the disciples to guide them into all truth. And so I was reading R.C. Sproul's sermon on this, and one of the things he just camps out for a while is the thought that those who pray most biblically know the Bible most deeply because they have the Spirit moving them most freely. Because what does the Spirit do? Spirit's got the mind of God and shows us the things of God. Do you fight against 
paralysis by understanding the scriptures and praying accordingly with it. Of course, you may say, well, still, I see what the scriptures say, but I don't know how it applies. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. I'm afraid. It's X, Y, Z. Isn't it great the Bible tells us that the Spirit groans on our behalf when we don't have words to pray? Romans chapter 8, verse 26. You have the Spirit in you even when you don't have words. You can groan asking for the Holy Spirit to move in your life according to the things that you would be asking God if you just had the words. All right, the third thing. So you have, you, secondly, was paralysis. First one is forgetfulness. Thirdly, I wrote down the word control. Somebody after the first service came up and said, by control, did you mean pride? I said, yeah, probably. A lot of times the reason we don't ask God for things is because we just want to control our life and we don't want to admit how needy we are. We want to control our finances. We want to control our circumstances. We want to control the people around us. We have forgotten that we don't have control and we can't control the heart of another and we can't control the future. The Apostle Paul, talk about a man who seemed to have bold strength and control in the moment. He knew that he had no control. Think of his words in Romans 15, 31. He says to the church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the love of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul the Apostle said to the church, I need you to pray for me because I don't have control over the things that are going to happen to me. I need you to pray that I would be faithful in the calling God's given me. I went into Pastor Bill's office early this week and I said, Bill, I'd like to talk. And I've got permission from him to share this. I'd like to talk if you can. He said, sure, no problem. I said, well, I want to talk to you about something in my sermon on Sunday, but I want to ask you to forgive me too. Years ago, when there were less of us in the church and less of us on church staff, Pastor Bill was coming on full time. And so he would write the weekly email that I write to you all every week. We kind of have whoever the preacher is is going to write that email. And I noticed something. He would preach every four to six weeks or six months to two months, whatever it would be. And each time when he wrote the pastoral email, he'd end it with a request that you all would pray for him in his preaching. That he would understand the word correctly. He'd be courageous to speak it boldly. And little turd over here went into his office one day and said, Bill, since you're not preaching as often, I think that if you ask too frequently for God's people to pray for you, you look like you're weak and afraid to preach. And I would encourage you not to do it so frequently in your emails. He could have and should have laughed me out of his office and said, oh, young pastor, you'll grow up and you'll mature and you'll understand why I ask for that. But he didn't. I'm thankful for that. But why would I say that to him? But that in ministry, we can rest on our own strength, our own gift set, and think we have control that we don't have. So brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we don't pray and ask God for the things we should be asking him is because we don't think we need to. We think we've got it. Fourth thing. Go back to what I said in the introduction. I think it's just fear. Fear that the Father will reject us. Fear of the temperament of our Heavenly Father. And the whole point of these verses, in my opinion, is Jesus, the Son of the Father, is telling us about his Father, and that should lay any fear to rest that we cannot go to God freely. I want you to think with me about Jesus' incarnation. How much freedom? What was his countenance like? 
when he prayed to his father, when he went through suffering, he knew he wasn't alone. And we have Jesus saying to you and me, ask God the father for things. You've got freedom to do that. Ask him without fear for the father shouldn't be feared for he's saved you and adopted you as his own. Do you believe that? Fear is no reason to pray, to not pray, excuse me, if we understand the teaching of Jesus here. Are you dealing with an addiction? You're just like, I, I just can't anymore. I'm just, a, I don't think the Father's going to receive. He's going to turn me away. No, you go back to him about that addictive struggle. What about your relationships that are just unreconciled and you just think it's impossible? No, you go back to him and keep asking according to his word. What about your insecurity of your finances or your plans or the future and the unknown? You go back to him and you ask him to remind you of all of his good promises. As I'm preparing to teach on Isaiah in weeks to come up in Boston, it just stands out to me that in Isaiah 40, that great section where we know that God is not like us. He never grows weary or tired. You know who that's written to? people in the Babylonian exile who are weary and tired. And so in your weariness and tired, go back to your heavenly father with the freedom Jesus has modeled for us in his life. Okay. Toward a wrap up here. Let me read to you a sentence from James Montgomery Boyce written decades ago. He says, this text contains the explanation of the weakness and irrelevance of much of Christian living today. This text explains why we might not be as wise as we need to be in a world that is rather strange and changing like crazy, where plastic people live in a liquid world, to use some of the terminology we'll discuss tonight. Why we're not the evangelists we should be or the disciples we should be. Why we live in our own little silos with our family and don't know how to talk to others outside of it. Why we, why we hide our sin This text explains that weakness, Boyce says. We don't pray like we should. There's another quote on the back of your bulletin. To summarize it, it sure is a good thing Jesus puts this teaching at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. For there have been some things taught to us by Jesus that we've looked at over recent months that we're not that good at accomplishing, are we? Are we as meek as we should be? Are we as pure as heart as we should be? Do we view money and mammon the way we should? Do we forgive and get the log out of our own eye like we should? And you get to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, and what an encouragement when our Lord says about all these things, ask the Father. And so that's what we're going to do, is we're going to ask the Father as I close up. But I want to tell you a story of what happened to me two weeks ago, and then we'll close in prayer. My in-law's house, as I shared, uh, been managing a project under their house because their pipes froze and burst back in January. And so I've done some days working there as the HVAC folks, plumbers under the house taking care of the problems. Well, one of the individuals that I hired to do the work for them, I was told is a great young man. He was a missionary and he's a great young man. I really enjoy talking to him. He had been a missionary and is now a trades professional. So when I first met this individual, I said, hey, man, tell me about, you were a missionary before you were doing this? Like, tell me, tell me about it. As soon as he started talking, I realized we came from different branches on the tree of Christianity. He said, well, one day the father told me to go be a missionary. And the father told me where to go. And then while we were there, the father told us what to do. And actually the father sent us home three months later. And the father, and the more he talked, I was like, 
I don't, I don't know hundred percent understand what, how you're describing your relationship with God. Like it was very charismatic and that's fine. And he said, well, what are you studying today? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church and I preach expositionally. He said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, what it means is that I believe God the Father has fully spoken through his son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, and his final revelation of himself is in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit guides us into that. And then there's a bajillion applications of God's word by his Holy Spirit's power, but there's only one meaning. And we go to that word for our guidance for life and for practice. And you could see he was looking at me like, dude, I don't understand at all what you just said. So I went home and I got thinking, man, I was a little uncomfortable the way he was intimating momentary revelation by his father, the way he described God the Father. Filed it away. They got the work done. Enjoyed that conversation. But as I got working on this text this week, it convicted me. If I have the Father of Jesus as my father, I should pray with a whole lot more freedom than I pray. I should speak of my relationship with the Father a whole lot more freely than I speak about that relationship. I shouldn't be afraid or timid or paralyzed. I, should, I, I don't have to flinch. I should ask for his help to understand his plan and his will through his word by his Holy Spirit's power, with, but with an intimacy that doesn't feel academic, that is, is as real as Jesus says his relationship with his father is. So as we pray now to close up, and we'll close up with the Lord's Prayer after I pray, but I want to encourage you by the Holy Spirit's work in you to realize that there is no prayer at all because there's no gospel at all, or there is a gospel with a father who delights for us to ask things of him according to his word. And there's more intimacy there than we can fathom or imagine. So let's pray together as we close up. Father, we ask that you'd hear us as we pray to you now and that we would realize and revel in the truth that we have as our Heavenly Father, the very Father of Jesus, who has told us to ask boldly things of you in his name for your glory and for all that we know we are needful of. We ask that you'd forgive us if we're afraid to pray or if we refuse to pray or if we forget to pray. If we just don't seek very hard, we try and then quit and then we seek after our own pleasure or other things. Would you forgive us? But thank you that if we're your children, that the forgiveness is there. And would you, would you transform us by means of the intimacy of your unconditional fatherly affection? And would the words that Jesus has said be imprinted this morning and we would begin to speak to you differently as our Father? Father, we know in our body there are a myriad of needs. We know there's health needs. We do think of our sister Julia in the hospital. We pray you just comfort and keep her body and strengthen her. We know there's people that are navigating chronic health things. And we know there's... Things well beyond health, there's occupational, vocational struggles or needs. We know there's relational tension and need of reconciliation. We know there's mission discernment among us that we ask that you would grant, that you'd show us the role that you want us to play in your kingdom and in a, a sphere of influence assigned to us. But all these things we ask that you'd help us to realize that we're praying to a father who has every one of our tears in a bottle and who knows us perfectly and knows what we need before we ask it. And that when we ask it, you're not informed as if you didn't know, 
But when we ask it, we experience the knowledge you have for you are our Father. And so, Lord, for Christ Community Church and for those you've gathered, I pray that you would transform us in how we ask things of you, how we seek your kingdom, and how we knock and know that, Father, Son, and Spirit, you have welcomed us into a salvation of beautiful hospitality. And would you then steer us far away from our own strong-willed, independent control, rejection of the need of crying out to you. Lord, in your mercy. And now would you receive us as we pray together the prayer that our Lord taught us. Let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.